Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When Mark describes the way that the women at the tomb felt when they were leaving the tomb after seeing the angel, he has two interesting words to describe how the women were feeling. He says that they were trembling and they were bewildered. Trembling and bewildered. Now, trembling has the idea of being afraid, but maybe not afraid of what you think they might have been afraid about. And the word bewildered, well, there's a very long definition for what that word means. And I think at its essence, it describes exactly the same way any of us would have felt when we went to the tomb on that resurrection morning, expecting to find a dead Jesus. But instead of that, we found a living, risen Savior. We're going to talk about how the women felt that morning and why Mark uses these words to describe how they were feeling in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Okay, so uh, let's turn then to uh, Mark chapter 16 and um, look at the scripture there. Um, we've already discussed it at least once or twice, and maybe we'll finish it up today. Uh, I'm going to actually read um, from the Greek text that I have. I'm not going to read it in Greek, but I'm going to read it in English. But I'm going to read it the way that it's written in the original Greek, so you can just compare to what you have uh, in your translation. So chapter 16, verse 1, it says, uh, And being past the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought, uh, bought aromatics, that having come, they might anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they come to the tomb, having risen the sun. S-U-N, having risen the sun. So it means like a daybreak, right? Verse 3. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away for us the stone out of the door of the tomb? 
We'll stop there just for a minute because although we've addressed this many times with the women going to the tomb that that morning, and as I was thinking about it this week, all of a sudden it occurred to me, um, I I I would wager that probably of those women, one of them was the ringleader. Okay. One of them was the one saying, we need to go to the tomb. We need to go there early uh, on the, the morning after the Sabbath. We need to take the spices. We need to go do this. And, and I think the, at least one, okay, this is my own imagination. But I have to think that at least one, or at least one of the other women was saying, what are you talking about? Go to the tomb, he's dead. Why are we, there's a stone in front of it. This is ridiculous. This is a waste of time. This is ridiculous. Besides, how early do I have to get up? And the ringleader is saying, no, you need to go with me and do this. We need to do this. We need to, we need to go. We, this is what we should do. And so I'm wondering if that's true. Which one of these, of these ladies, of these women, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, which one do you think would have been the ringleader saying, let's go, we got to go? <laughs> Mary Magdalene? I think there's a good chance it was Mary Magdalene because she is the only one that is named in all of the gospel accounts that she, she like, they're all some named in some of them. Each one of them is named here or there, but she's the only one named in all four. So I think you're probably, I, that's who I would go with too. I would go with Mary Magdalene as the ringleader. And so I think what happened then is as they're going on their way and what Mark says, you know, who's going to roll the stone away? So I think the one who was, the one who was reluctant, the one who's just going because the ringleader, maybe Mary Magdalene kind of cajoled them into going and made them feel guilty or whatever. Like on the way, I think this woman was going, okay, so smarty pants. Now what are we going to do when we get there, huh? There's going to be a, a stone. Who's going to roll a stone away, huh? Who's going to do that? <laughs> and I think the ringleader probably Mary Magdalene saying, we'll figure it out when we get there. We just have to go. And this brings up a point that I think I've made in this class before, but I think it's worth repeating and that is the, the concept of just being in the right place at the right time. Sometimes you don't want to be in the right place at the right time. Sometimes it takes a lot of extra effort to be in the right place at the right time. And sometimes you're not all in on that. Um, so, for example, if one of these women was reluctant, and if she was like, I don't want to get up that early. I don't want to have to prepare the spices. I, why go? And all the stuff, all the reasons not to do it. But she did it anyway. So in spite of her reluctance, in spite of the obstacles she had to overcome, in spite of the hurdles she had to overcome, in spite of all the things, she, the inertia she had to get over to get there, because she was in the right place at the right time, she got this huge blessing of seeing that the stone was rolled away, the tomb is empty, Jesus is risen, hearing the voice of the angel, none of which would have happened if she didn't go there. 
in spite of the difficulties she may have faced in getting there. I'm convinced that being in the right place at the right time, you God will honor that and give you a blessing that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So when does this apply? Okay, for me it applies at 6.15 on Sunday morning when my alarm goes off. And I'm like, I do not want to get up out of bed. I do not want to get ready for church. I'd rather stay and sleep. I don't want to do this. I do not want to do this. There's not a Sunday morning I get up when I want to get up, even though I know I'm coming to church. But because I do it, the right place to be on Sunday morning is in church. The right place to be at the right time is in church on Sunday morning, if you can get here. Sometimes you can't. You're sick, you're hurt, your car doesn't... You know, but if you can, and if it's possible, overcoming that inertia and being in the right place at the right time... All the blessings I would not get if I didn't get here, but I do get because I am here. So I'll give you another example of this. My daughter uh, goes to Crossroads over in Eastgate, and um, she's involved there, and they were going to go, the high school, the high schoolers were going to go to a camp. And my daughter doesn't have really anything to do with the high school group, but they needed volunteers to help, to be chaperones and so forth, the counselors and all that. So they asked my daughter to do it. She did not want to do it. She did not want to do it. She did not want to go. She fought it and she kicked and screamed all the way, but she felt, okay, they need me. They asked her more than once. She turned me down several times and she finally agreed to go and she is not looking forward to it. She gets there and there's one particular high school girl who's not a Christian yet, but she's there. God has taken her there, but she's kind of resistant to the gospel message and so on and so forth. Long story short, my daughter took her under her wing, counseled her the whole week, and really became this girl's mentor in many ways. And she still hasn't become a Christian yet, per se, but she's on the road. And my daughter really felt that the reason God put her there, because there was no one, and Kelly, my daughter, was the extra person who had the extra time to help this girl. Everyone else was busy doing other things. Without Kelly being there, this girl would not have been ministered to in that way. And so by being in the right place at the right time, Kelly was able to get the blessing of being this person for her and able, able to give the blessing of being this person to her. So um, that's what I think these women are experiencing here is they are in the right place at the right time and even though maybe one of them maybe was, well, we don't, and this, we don't get this from reading this, and maybe they were all anxious to go, all excited to go, but I have a feeling that they're having this discussion partly because, you know, maybe they were saying, why are we even doing this? Because how are we going to get past that big stone? Okay, so uh, verse 4. And having looked up, they see that has been rolled away the stone. For it was great, very. For it was megas sphodros. Sphodros. That's the Greek word, sphodros. Megas sphodros. It was great, very. Verse 5. And having entered into the tomb... They saw a young man sitting on the right, clothed with a robe white, and they were greatly, and what does your Bible say there? They were greatly what? 
Alarmed or amazed? So the actual Greek is amazed. They were greatly amazed. But this particular word used for amazed and in the connotation and the context of it, the translation of alarmed is a good translation of it. So they were greatly amazed, and this kind of amazing amazement they were feeling was really one of alarm and, and fear. Um, so that's what they were feeling. They were amazed with alarm. They were alarmed with amazement, however you want to put that. But alarm is a good, a good translation. Verse 6, but he says to them, not be amazed. Do you have alarmed there? Uh, Doris, you had amazed. Do you have amazed there on that one too? Yeah. So, uh, but he says to them, not be amazed. Jesus, you seek the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. That's one of my favorite verses of this passage is, Behold, where they live. Behold, right there. Not there anymore. Go look at it. See for yourself. Um, okay, but, verse 7, go, say to his disciples and to Peter, we talked about why he said, he put to Peter out of that uh, specifically, and to Peter that he goes before you into Galilee, there him shall you see as he said to you. And having gone out, and I bet your, your translation doesn't have this word, quickly. Do you have that in yours? Yeah, so the Greek says, and having gone out quickly, they fled from the tomb. So there's two different ideas here, quickly and they fled. So uh, there's, there's a difference between doing something quickly and doing something fast. So if you do something quickly, it means you do it like right now. If you're doing something fast, it means you 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 know you have some speed to it. So no, quickly doesn't isn't one many trans. Does anybody have the word quickly in your translation? No. So well, I'm not that I'm not that far yet. I haven't got that far yet. Do you have and having gone out at the end of that verse? Do you have it? And fled from the tomb. Okay. So in the Greek, it's, it's, it's different. They have the, the first part last, the last part first. So um, so if you look at the last part of verse 8, it's probably what you guys are looking at. And having gone out quickly, they fled from the tomb. So uh, the idea is that they they went out quickly. And all that means is that they didn't, they didn't hang around. They didn't hang around and discuss it. They didn't talk about it. When he said... Uh, go and tell them that uh, he will meet them in Galilee, as he said to you. And, and as, soon, as soon as the words were out of the angel's mouth, as soon as he finished that, they were out of there. They didn't hang around to talk about it. They didn't hang around to even talk to the angel. He said, they get, he gave us our marching orders. Let's get out of here and go do it. And then the idea of they fled, then that's the idea of going fast. And the, you have the picture of them running. So what uh, Mark is saying here is after the angel talked to them, they left that tomb right away, immediately, and they ran from the tomb. So you have the idea of both quickly and fast there. They were they left immediately and they and they went as fast as they could back to Jerusalem. So this is and then it goes on and possessed them 
trembling, and amazement. And the idea there is uh, possessed is not like being possessed by like a demon or something like that or some spirit. Possessed is the idea of being gripped by something, having your mind just focused on that one thing that you can't get it out of your head. You ever had that before? We have one thing on your mind, you just can't get it out of your mind. It just like possesses you, this idea or this thing or this thought. Um, and you, you have a hard time, you know, thinking about anything else. Do any of you have any other word there um, in that part where it says they were trembling and had trembling and amazement? Do you have any other? Hmm? Yeah, but do you have any other word that like, like this is like the trembling and amazement or bewilderment, it, it possessed them. Grip them. That's a good translation. It just grips them. It just has hold of them. They can't think of anything else but that right now. So this possessed them trembling and amazement or bewilderment. So let's first deal with trembling. The word translated there is trembling. I want to read to you out of the uh, uh, the, the dictionary I have of what the Greek dictionary of what this word trembling means here in, in the connotation of it. So in verse 8, the word trembling, this is what it means. It's used to describe the anxiety of someone who distrusts their ability to completely meet all requirements, but religiously does their utmost to fulfill to fulfill their duty. So used to describe the anxiety of someone who distress, who um, distrusts their ability to completely meet all requirements, but religiously does their utmost to fulfill their duty. So what would that mean for what we're seeing here in this passage? In other words, how does that apply to what they were trembling about? Because if you read it, you think they're trembling, why? They're afraid. But this definition of trembling doesn't really say anything about, I mean, what do you think they're afraid of? If you, if you read that there and you see trembling, you think they're afraid of what? Hmm? The angel? They've seen an angel. We know everybody's afraid when they see an angel. They're trembling because they just saw an angel and that's why they're afraid. But that's not really what this definition is saying of the word trembling here. The whole situation? The whole thing? We're going to get to that because what you're saying there really has more to do with their amazement and their bewilderment, which we'll get to in a minute. The whole thing that just happened to them. That's, that, the whole thing that just happened to them is what's making them be amazed and bewildered. But that's not really why they're trembling. They want to get the message right? Yes, right. Yeah. They're trembling because, let's go back to the trans, to the definition. It's used to describe the anxiety of someone who distrusts their ability to completely meet all the requirements. What have they been told to do? Yes, and so they're trembling because they're not sure they can do that right, properly. So, used to describe the anxiety of someone who distresses their, who distrusts, their ability to completely meet all the requirements. So they're trembling because they don't, they've been called to do something pretty amazing here, pretty 
impressive and pretty serious and di- you know difficult and maybe dangerous even, and they're not sure that they can do it. Exactly. Exactly. It, uh, you know, I, I'll give you an example here, too, just, just in real life, uh, for us today. Um, I never sleep that well on Saturday night, because you know why? I'm trembling about coming in here and teaching on Sunday. Okay? Every day, every, when I was a pastor and I had to go preach sermons, every time on Sunday, I was trembling on the way to church, because I had to give a sermon. And... Uh, I'm sure that you've had that experience when you've had some responsibility. Maybe it's a service to the Lord. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something personal. But you're trembling because you've been called to do something that is serious, but is and important and meaningful. But it's 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 more it's more than you're able to do, and and so you're trembling because you know you can't really do it right. <laughs> And you're afraid that you're going to do it wrong. And so uh, that's what these women were experiencing. They've been told by the angel, this is something you have to do. And they know the import of it and how meaningful it is, how important it is. And yet they don't feel they can, they can do it right. And so they're overwhelmed and trembling by the fear, if you want to call it that, of, of messing it up. And it says, go on to say, uh, but, they, but religiously they do their utmost to fulfill their duty. And so... They're trembling, but they're going to do their best. And that's where it works out as a pastor. You, you preach the best sermon you can. You teach a Sunday school class, you do the best you can. And you leave it in God's hands. And when you do something at work, you do the best you can. And, uh, and I think, too, like people who are actors, for example. I mean, I, you read very often that actors who go on stage, that before they go on stage and perform, they have very difficult, they're throwing up or whatever, because they're nervous about going out and they're trembling about doing this acting job. And so this is how they were feeling. So, so now let's go on to, and, and they, were, they were, what also gripped them was this bewilderment or this amazement. Now, this I have to read to you because I did not even know myself what all this this word means. Now, this word amaze, okay, is not the same word that was used when we had alarmed. Okay, so when we're talking in the other verses, I think it was five and six, where Mark is saying the women were amazed, it meant alarmed. That's a different Greek word, okay? This Greek word, which is translated, and I'm glad they translated it differently, as bewildered even though it really means amazement, but it's a different kind of amazement. And the word in Greek is ecstasis, from which we get the English word ecstatic. And so here is the definition. I can't believe this. this is, I, hope you, I hope you're so impressed as I am about it. So this word amazement is, this is the definition of it. It is a sense of breathtaking and profound amazement coupled with exquisite dread. You like Exquisite dread at the sight of something remarkable, incredible, strange, or supernatural. The gripping fascination with some enthralling phenomenon which drives someone from the powers of reason in order to encounter it. The word portrays someone as being carried away out of mind 
being so psychologically and emotionally moved by some fantastic sight that they lose all sense of their present situation. They are held captive by it and fall under its sway because it is beyond their power to impose rational controls on the object of wonder. Wow. That's what these women were feeling. That's what was gripping their minds. Trembling that they've been called to do this and they were adequate to it, but also bewildered and amazed. And this whole description of that, because of what? They saw the stone rolled away. They hadn't expected that. They had found an empty tomb with Jesus not there. They saw and heard an angel speak to them. Uh, they saw where Jesus laid and he's not there. They heard the message that he's alive. And then they're told to go and tell others. And as Jan said, all this together, this whole situation, just overwhelmed them to such an extent that basically, if I were to define this whole description and definition we just had, what I would, the, my, what I would say is they were blown away. <laughs> they were blown away. And who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? Okay, so let's just finish this. I know I'm running just a little bit late, but I want to finish it so we can go on to um, go on to John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, go on to Luke next week. And so then it says, um, and to no one anything they spoke, for they were afraid. And that afraid is phobia, phobos, phobia, and that is actually being afraid. They they were afraid. Now hear what their fear is. Their fear is they're afraid to talk to anyone about what's happened outside of the disciples because they're afraid you know if they if they go talking to you know if they go like the shepherds at jesus birth and go just go proclaiming this to everyone uh they're they're afraid to do that because of rome of the religious leaders so they're not afraid to go talk to the disciples but their their fear here is the fear of talking to other extraneous people about it because obviously they don't know you know what the result of that might be, and it might put their lives in danger. Uh, so, so last thing I want to just comment on is this: um, in Matthew's account, which we talked about last time, um, we find these people. We find the women, including Mary Magdalene, in the story. We find the angel. We find the Roman guards, which we don't have in Mark. We find the chief priests and the elders, which we don't have in Mark. And we find the women encountering Jesus. And he gives us a, Matthew gives us a description of the women actually encountering Jesus. In uh, Luke, we have the story of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road who encountered Jesus uh, that day, and they knew it was Jesus. In John, we have the encounter of Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus at the, at the garden and at the tomb. So in all of those three uh, Gospels, we have an eyewitness account of someone or some people finding Jesus, seeing Jesus. Now in Mark, we don't have that. In Mark, we have, which we're not going to get into, verse 9, which is basically a throwaway in Mark. Oh, you know, Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene. It's kind of a throwaway that this happened. But Mark does not give us, like the other three writers, give us an actual an actual encounter that they describe, you know, as this actually happened. But Mark doesn't give us Jesus, really, in his encounter of what happened at the tomb. And, and I'm wondering, does that detract 
from Mark's account or does that enhance Mark's account to you? That we don't see that specific encounter between Jesus and someone happen. Or do you care? <laughs> or does it matter? <laughs> I mean, because here's, let me give you what I think, what my, my opinion is. My opinion is that by not doing that, Mark calls us to a higher faith. Uh, because I think, you know, what Mark would say is, I gave you the angel. I gave you the women. Why do you need to actually see Jesus here? Because the angel has said he's alive and he's risen, and the women are going to proclaim he's alive and he's risen. So you have God speaking through the angel who's a messenger that this has happened, and the women are going to go back and tell the disciples that it's happened. So why do you need to have in my account that someone actually see it? Isn't it good enough testimony just to have the second-hand testimony of an angel and a, and a woman who was given the message. Why do you need to see Jesus here to believe that it happened? Isn't that enough? And I'll, give you, I, I, I'll just give you a little, a little story as an example. For, so, for example... If you wanted to have an analogy of this, let's say that a, 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 bank, a bank gets robbed. And the bank robber, the way he does it is, when the president of the bank gets there early in the morning to open the bank, the robber is there waiting for him. And it's just the president opens the bank by himself. He gets there early in the morning. He opens the bank. The robber confronts him, takes him into the bank, and makes him open the vault, and he robs the bank. And let's say then that eventually the police catch this man, the robber, and the, uh, before they can go to trial, they bring the line up and the bank president says, yeah, that's the guy. And then, uh, and then the, um, the bank robber goes back to the office. He tells his secretary, he says, I saw him. That's the guy, the guy I pointed out, and he is the guy who robbed the bank. He did it. He is the one. And let's say then they decide to go to trial, and let's say the night before they go to trial, the bank president has a heart attack and dies. What well, do the now Stan, don't don't get me on legal grounds now if this could or could not. Just 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 go with me. Just go with me on this, okay? Let's say the prosecuting attorney says, we're still gonna go forward with the trial. Because I no longer have the eyewitness account of the bank president, but I have his secretary. And he told his secretary that that's the man. So I have the word of the bank president who says that, hap that this guy did it. And he was an honest person. And he told his secretary that this is the guy. And she's an honest person. So we'll just put her up. And her testimony will be good enough to convict this guy. Because even though it's secondhand, it can be it's trustworthy and true. That is one of the listed exceptions to hearsay. Somebody dies. Okay. Okay. There. So, guess what? This is the way we believe today, and we have faith. We are taking the eyewitness account 
of people who saw it. So we're saying, we believe John. We believe Mark. We believe Matthew. We believe the Bible, even though it all is all kind of secondhand testimony, even though there are some eyewitnesses. But we haven't been there. We haven't seen it. No one we knows. And so I like the way Mark does this in a way, because I think he asks us to have faith in what the angel said and what the women said, and that should be good enough for us. And for us, what is faith? Believing what you have not seen, believing what you have not heard. And so Mark's uh, gospel account of uh, the tomb on Easter morning, resurrection morning, is more like the faith that we're called to have. We believe him because we believe the angel was true and honest, the women were true and honest, and we can have faith in what they said. So, and that's all I have. Yeah, Sam? I'm just stuck on the uh, this is this is Luke uh, twelve. <clears throat> it says, uh, uh, no, yeah, it says the twelve twelve apostles. It says there's Simon, also named Peter, his brother Andrew, there's James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and then he goes on. Simon, who was called the Zealot, and then you got the last two are. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. So it has to be Judas, the son of James, maybe it's James and Judas. But I mean, it doesn't say uh, an apostle named James, second, a second apostle named James, it says Judas, the son of James. So, now you have James, you have James, and you, James and John, then you have James, the son of Alphaeus. That's two Jameses. So you have James, who's the brother of John, and then you have James, the son of Alphaeus. So there's two Jameses there. Yep, two Jameses there in the 12. Yeah. Two Jameses and two Simons, too. Did you notice that? We have Simon Peter, and then we have Simon the Zealot. So you have two Simons as, as well out there. So. Okay, that's it uh, for me for today. Next week we will take a look at uh, Luke and what he has to say. Yes. Yes. Jesus, after he appeared to the ladies, then appeared to two more disciples and then make the first act. Yes. In a different form. Yes. How do we interpret Jesus appearing to the two disciples in a different form? And the eleven did not believe those either. <laughs> what was that different form? Well, there's some belief that in his glorified body that Jesus looked different in some way. That Although the essence of Christ was there, physically his appearance had changed in some way. And so, they talk about the, the two on the road to Emmaus. No, it's in uh, verse uh, 12, 16, 12. Jesus appeared to two disciples in the and then they. Yeah. Well, I think there again they recognized him because even though he was in a different form, his essence was the same, and his you know his spirit was the same. So it was the same Jesus, just even though he might have looked somewhat differently. And the other disciples, you know, they really didn't believe until he appeared to them in the upper room in person and said, "It is me." And so it's just, again, that lack of 
faith, as it were, that some that you know even those people who walked with him all those years said, you know, we just can't believe until we. It's just hard for us to believe until we see him uh, ourselves. I mean, that's basically where. Right, right, exactly. And and the the, the, the disciples fi- the disciples did finally believe when Peter came back and said he's he's appeared to me. So when the women came back from the tomb, the disciples said, oh, "We don't believe you." And even when they were up in the other room, they really didn't believe him. But if you what we'll see eventually is when the two in the road to Emmaus see Jesus as Jesus and he reveals himself to them, they rush back to Jerusalem to to give this evidence to the disciples who are together, thinking that they still don't believe yet. And we're going to go tell them that this happened so they can believe. But by the time they get there, Peter has beat them to the punch because Jesus has appeared to Peter separately, where Mark says, and Peter, and Jesus appears to Peter separately, and Peter gets there first to the upper room. And when Peter says it happened, they do believe, all except Thomas, who wasn't there at the time. But all the ones who were there, they, they believe Peter's account. So when the two from Emmaus get there, they're, they're already having a party in the upper room. They're having a party in the upper room because why? Because Peter told them that Jesus is alive. So uh, there was a lot of unbelief happening. We're talking about that today a lot. The Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't believe until the resurrection. Even after the resurrection, the apostles didn't believe until they didn't believe the women until Peter told them. So uh, they there was a lot of you know I gotta I just can't believe and here's and here's why I think this description. What I do with it? This, okay. This is why. This is this is why they all had such a hard time believing it. It is a sense of breathtaking and profound amazement, coupled with exquisite dread at the sight of something remarkable, incredible, strange, or supernatural. The gripping fascination with some enthralling phenomenon, which drives someone from the powers of reason in order to encounter it. The word portrays someone as being carried away, out of mind, being so psychologically and emotionally moved by some fantastic sight that they lose all sense of their present situation. They're held captive by it and fall under its sway because it is beyond their power to impose rational controls on the object of wonder. The object of wonder being Christ resurrected. They couldn't get their heads around it. They could not get their heads around it until... They saw him themselves. That's what it took. So, and we can understand that because we probably would have felt the same way if we'd been there at the time. So. All right, that's all I got today. We're out of time. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today, and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.